Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright, Constable & Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And I am joined today by my law partner, George Backrack, and our very special guest commentators, Mr. Jim Hamill, Claims Counsel with Zurich American Insurance Company, and Ms. Gretchen Eck, Senior Surety Counsel with Liberty Mutual Surety. Gretchen and Jim, welcome, and please say hello to everybody. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. So we're uh, we'll properly introduce uh, Jim and Gretchen a little later in the in the uh, in the episode. But as always, we like to open our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of uh, Surety today. We ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. Uh, we also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. At this point, uh, I'd like to offer a couple of lighthearted observations. First, Surety Today is the number one Surety Live call-in podcast in the country, mostly because it's the only live call-in Surety podcast in the country, but still it's good to be number one. Second, in the days of the coronavirus, having a live call-in podcast makes us look like geniuses because you can't get the coronavirus by calling in. and We won't have to cancel because of fear of the coronavirus. And we don't risk the caller's health by forcing you to fly all around the country and assemble in a room full of people who are transmitting all kinds of who knows what. Folks, we are always looking out for you. So, of course, if you, uh, if you get laid up because of the coronavirus and you miss a live presentation, you can listen to a recording at multiple locations. Uh, on uh, Surety Today page on our website, wcslaw.com, as a podcast at iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, or Podbean, just search for Surety Today, or on our microsite, suretytoday.net. If you have any suggestions for future topics, people to interview, or improvements, please let us know because we are actively putting together our episodes for the rest of the year. As always, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, which means you can shout obscenities at us or ruffle papers or eat with your mouth open, and we can't hear it. Uh, We'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. As we get started today, George and I wanted to take a minute to address a a really sad and somber matter. Um, As many of, of you know, on February 14, 2020, our friend, colleague, and partner, Jerry Sunderland, lost his year-long battle with uh, two cancers. He beat the first one, but the second one was just too much for him. Just like in his life, though, Jerry fought hard and bravely, and he regularly came into work right up until just before the end. Jerry was 73 when he passed, and he led a too short but wonderful life. Before becoming a lawyer, Jerry was a lieutenant in the Army during the Vietnam War. After graduating from the University of Maryland School of Law, he practiced law for over 40 years. He was an in-house surety claims adjuster for Aetna and then with F&D. And after that, he was uh, an assistant attorney general for the state of Maryland for a few years before going into private practice. 
He had an incredible memory for the law and could bring his unique perspective to solving any surety problem. Jerry was married to his wife, Sue, for over 50 years, and he's survived by Sue and their three sons and five grandkids. He was a devoted husband and father, and we will all miss him a lot. George and I also wanted to thank everyone who expressed their condolences, thoughts, and prayers for Jerry. It really was a, a tremendous outpouring of love and affection and respect for Jerry, and he, he, uh, we, uh, we, we passed uh, all of those messages on to his wife, and she was very, very appreciative as well. It seems uh, surreal to lose someone like Jerry and then carry on with business as usual, but if you knew Jerry, you would know that that is exactly uh, how he would have wanted it. No fuss, straight to business. That, that was Jerry. So with that in mind, let's, let's get started, and I'll turn this over to George to introduce our topic today. More and more today, two or more sureties are writing performance and payment bonds for the same principal. There are essentially two such situations. In the first situation, the sureties are co-sureties for the principal on performance and payment bonds on one bonded project or on multiple bonded projects. A typical co-surety arrangement that frequently has a written co-surety agreement that sets forth the rights, duties, and obligations of the sureties. Such co-surety agreements are not the topic of today's discussion. In the second situation, the sureties are writing bonds for the same principal, either at the same time for different bonded projects, or the second surety is writing subsequent bonds for the principal after the first surety has decided not to issue more bonds for that principal. Under those circumstances, there is rarely, if ever, a written agreement arrangement between the two sureties when the principal gets into trouble. The question then becomes whether an agreement of some kind can be reached by the two sureties to resolve any conflicts. There are guidelines in the surety industry. Today we're going to address the surety's guiding claim procedures. Now there's some confusion as to whether the true name of these guidelines is the guiding claim procedures or the guiding principles, as both seem to be used interchangeably, sometimes in the same document. If we, the speakers, go back and forth on the name, we apologize. Some sureties today may either know about the guiding claim procedures or act consistently with their terms without knowledge of their existence. The guiding claim procedures may assist two or more sureties in reaching an agreement when a principal's potential or actual default could affect the rights and obligations of more than one surety. Therefore, the wheels of surety life do not have to be reinvented every time to address the thorny issues and the obvious conflicting sureties' interests. Mike Stover and I will provide an overview of the sureties' guiding claim procedures. We will then have our two guest commentators provide some of their insights on handling claims when two or more sureties are involved. We will then address any questions that you may have. Mike? Okay, let's uh, get started. Before we, we start talking about what the guiding claim procedures are and what they can do for two or more sureties with the same principle that's in default, I want to discuss what the procedures don't do and what they are not. The guiding claim procedures, first of all, I don't think, we didn't really talk about it, George, but these, these procedures were drafted back in the 50s by the then Surety, uh, Surety Association of America, which is now the Surety and Fidelity Association of America, the SFAA. And then over the years, they, they've been updated and, and um, 
modified a little bit, but wh when was the last time we saw a modification? Sometime in the 1987. 80s, yeah. So anyway, um, the guiding claim procedures are only to be considered as a guide to sureties with respect to sureties reaching some subsequent agreement going forward. Section 9 of the guiding procedures makes clear that the procedures are not intended to be legally binding. Section 9 provides in part, quote, these guiding claim procedures do not create legal rights or obligations among any sureties, unquote. With respect to sections 2 through 8 of the procedures, Section 9 points out that the obligations could become binding if the sureties expressly agree to be bound and such agreement is reduced to writing. In the absence of a written agreement, Section 9 reiterates again that the procedures do not create legal rights or obligations among sureties. Section 9 separates out uh, Section 1 from being part of the subsequent agreement language because, as I'll discuss in a minute, Section 1 of the procedures addresses knowledge and notice once the surety's investigation uh, reveals that there's another surety out there. So that obviously is not part of an agreement. So obviously, because the guiding procedures are not binding, the best practice is to negotiate the terms of any cooperation and memorialize any agreements uh, between the sureties in an executed written document. And I, I think Jim and Gretchen will, will speak to that later. So continuing along the line of what the guiding procedures are not intended to be, section eight of the procedures discusses in what situation uh, the procedures are not intended to apply. Section eight addresses four circumstances where the procedures are inapplicable. Uh, a is where a surety is issued bonds after having actual knowledge of loss incurred by another surety on a bond issued previously. B is where circumstances make the procedures unreasonable, impracticable, or unduly burdensome. C is where reinsurers, co-sureties, or the SBA do not agree. And D is where the contractor refuses to cooperate. The first scenario in subsection A makes sense. It's like trying to buy insurance after you've already had the accident. If a surety comes in and issues bonds after it is aware of losses incurred by the earlier surety, it should not get the benefit of any equitable sharing of assets or expenses that is con contemplated by the procedures. The Johnny-come-lately surety could be gaining an advantage that it would not otherwise be entitled to if it were allowed to participate. The element of joint misfortune, quote-unquote, that befalls two or more sureties at the guiding procedures are designed to address and which justify joint actions is not present where the other surety comes to the situation knowingly and willingly. Of course, every situation is somewhat unique and in some circumstances it may make sense to reach some kind of cooperation agreement with the Johnny-come-lately surety. Notwithstanding Section 8A, the parties can certainly agree to waive that uh, kind of a restriction. Subsection C and D basically provide that if the relevant stakeholders do not agree to the application of the guiding procedures, then the procedures should not be used. The subsection identifies reinsurers, co-sureties, the SBA, or the contractor as the relevant stakeholders. For the most part, these seem like common sense provisions because if you don't have buy-in you know, from the relevant stakeholders, you could end up in a, a far worse position. Typically, the analysis that convinces the sureties to utilize the procedures uh, should be sufficient to convince the other stakeholders, but sometimes there may be a conflict with a pre-existing internal company policy or terms of other agreements or treaties or the other stakeholders may perceive an unfair outcome. Obviously, the sureties could agree to apply the procedures if their 
cost-benefit analysis shows a clear advantage regardless of stakeholder buy-in, but as the drafters of the guiding principles seem to recognize, you could be asking for trouble uh, if you're going to be doing that. Subsection D states that the procedures do not apply if the contractor refuses to cooperate uh, with the implementation. I think, I think that provision might be giving the contractor too much power, especially in light of the likely indemnity agreement obligations that that contractor will be bound to, including the obligation to cooperate and the, the discretion that the sureties are given in the typical GIA to uh, settle and resolve claims. One stakeholder that I would add to this list that these subsections um, don't mention is indemnitors. In many jurisdictions, courts have judicially required sureties to act reasonably toward the indemnitors in addressing claims and to consider the, the impact of the surety's actions on indemnitors. Thus, even where the clear language in the indemnity agreement gives the surety the complete and full discretion to resolve claims, utilize assets, compromise claims, in some jurisdictions, courts have ignored that language and engrafted some kind of a duty on, on the surety. So other courts will apply a duty of good faith and fair dealing to the surety's actions. So sureties considering implementing the guiding procedures uh, in addition to the stakeholders that are mentioned in those procedures should consider also uh, talking to the indemnitors. So let's look at section one of the guiding procedures which addresses how the process of considering uh, using the procedures gets started. Section one provides that whenever a surety during its investigation of a default obtains knowledge of another surety with open bonds, the investigating surety shall request that the contractor give immediate notice to the other surety. If the contractor refuses to give notice, section one requires the surety to notify the contractor that the surety intends to give the notice, and then the surety may do so. Uh, this section is, is somewhat at odds with section 8B, which essentially says that the procedures don't apply if the contractor refuses to cooperate. But Section 1 gives the green light to go around the contractor if it refuses with respect to the notice. Obviously, the point of giving notice is to encourage the other surety in the discussion about, um, to engage in discussion about whether to use these principles or not. The notice also lets the other surety know that the, uh, that another surety is involved and, and that they should be considering that in their actions towards the various assets. I suspect that the procedures take the tact of going through the contractor first to attempt to avoid any issues with allegations of interference, disclosure of confidential or private information, et cetera. And section one attempts to ameliorate this issue by also requiring that the notice provided by the surety shall not contain, shall quote, not contain any information in violation of any confidential relationship between the investigating surety and the contractor, unquote. I really don't like the drafter's use of the concept of a confidential relationship. There are many court decisions out there that hold that there is no confidential relationship between the surety and the principal, and the surety is not a fiduciary to the principal. I think the drafter's point is more that the surety should not share any confidential or private information in the notice, and that's quite valid. One thing for, for claims handlers to be mindful of is whether any applicable state adjuster rules, regulations, or procedures regarding privacy and keeping information confidential would apply to the Section 1 notice uh, in, in the guideline procedures. Obviously, for the purposes of utilizing the guidelines uh, to start the sureties need to find each other and open up a dialogue, uh, just in the process of doing that, you've got to be careful 
um, you know, about about what information you're conveying. Uh, let me turn it over to George. He's turning it over to George so George doesn't cut all of you off. <laughs> Much of okay. what the guiding claim procedures address is the surety salvage. What recoveries each surety should receive when a principal is in default on multiple bonds issued by multiple sureties? To make matters simpler, the guiding claim procedures list four definitions. The first definition is the definition of loss. Now, each of the surety's indemnity agreements probably define the surety's loss, and sometimes that definition is a laundry list of possible loss payments. The definition of loss in the guiding claim procedures merely, includes merely losses and allocated expenses paid or incurred, excluding salaries of the employees of the respective sureties. Since any agreement between the sureties will be reduced to writing, their agreement about the exact definition of loss may be more completely defined to fit the situation. The second definition is that of specific assets, which are those assets described in Section 3 of the Guiding Claim Procedures, to which one surety has superior or priority rights over the other sureties. I'll, I will discuss that in a moment. The third definition is the definition of general assets, and the fourth is the definition of net proceeds, and Mike will address those. So let's look at Section 3 of the Guiding Claim Procedures, which provides that as between the multiple sureties, unless otherwise agreed, a surety on a particular bond or project has superior or priority rights or claims to the following types of specific assets, and that's capital S, capital A. First and most obviously, the guiding claim procedures concept is that the bonded contract funds from one surety's bonded contract should be used in the following order of priority, to pay the cost of completing that bonded contract and to pay the principal's obligations incurred prior to default to its subcontractors and suppliers for their performance, materials, and services provided on that bonded contract. This is standard and reasonable and complies with contract indemnity and subrogation law. The guiding claim procedures concept is then extended for the surety's use of those bonded contract funds to pay, repay any indebtedness or obligations of the principal to the surety and then to hold any balance as a general asset, which Mike will discuss. However, using any such excess bonded contract funds to repay any indebtedness or obligations that the principal may owe to the surety, including under the indemnity agreement, is something that the multiple sureties would have to expressly agree to, as the excess bonded contract funds could very well come under the definition of general assets instead, which Mike will discuss. There are other specific assets. One is all materials ordered, purchased, or manufactured specifically for such contract and paid for by the principal or the surety which shall be used by the surety on that contract to complete that contract. And the other one is the prior right to all equipment on the site of the contract at the time the first surety begins a claim investigation for use in the completion of said contract and any other contract secured by a bond executed by that surety for the principal. Now the surety's use of the materials purchased for a particular bondage contract and more directly, specially, specifically specially manufactured materials for that particular bonded contract is supported by case law and the jurisdictions in which that uh, issue has arisen. 
The surety's rights to use the principal's equipment um, as set forth in, in the uh, guiding claim procedures is less clear. Finally, Section 3D of the guiding claim procedures deals with the surety sale of any excess materials and equipment and the use of the net proceeds. Now, while the sureties may come to some agreement about the use and liquidation of specific assets, other creditors, such as the principal secured lending bank, the trustee in the principal's bankruptcy case, and any equipment lessors with respect to the principal's equipment may have other rights and interests in the excess bonded contract funds and may have other plans for the use and disposition of the excess materials and equipment on the bonded projects. Their rights may be detrimental to the sureties and they cannot be ignored. In summary, Section 3 addresses specific assets where one surety may have a superior or priority rights to certain assets which can be dealt with among the multiple sureties under the guiding claim procedures. But that's done with an acknowledgement and understanding that other parties, the principal's bank, the trustee in the principal's bankruptcy case, and any equipment lessors may not only have an interest in what occurs, but also superior or priority rights to the surety's rights. Mike? Okay, George, thanks. Um, one thing I want to mention, I did some, some searching Westlaw and all that, and, and I did not find any cases talking about these, these guiding um, procedures. So, so it's the Wild West, man, whatever you guys want to do, right? So Section 4 of the guiding procedures addresses the treatment between the sureties of, of what's defined as general assets. As George noted, the procedures broadly define the term general assets in Section 2. The definition is simply quote, general assets means all tangible and intangible property and rights to property of the contractor other than specific assets. So, so you, need to, you need to refer to and understand what George was just discussing about specific assets to be able to understand what the guiding procedures intend to cover under the term general assets. While the definition um, in Section 2 doesn't mention it, one must also consider the assets addressed in Section 6 as not constituting, uh, as I said, not constituting general assets. And George will discuss uh, Section 6 a little later. With the exception of what is addressed in Sections 3 and 6, uh, the drafters intended the term general assets to be broad and all-encompassing, basically. Uh, as we'll discuss next in Section 4's treatment of general assets, the concept of distributing net proceeds is also utilized. And Section 2 defines that term, net proceeds, as meaning gross proceeds, less legal and other expense incurred in acquiring, control, and liquidating general assets. So before any funds are apportioned between the sureties under the guiding procedures, the funds are used to reimburse the surety that incurred the expense and fees associated with generating those funds. You know, and now... Uh, let, let's look at Section 4 to see how the procedures address general assets. Section 4 provides that the surety should cooperate and proceed jointly in the name of one or more of them, but for the benefit of all, to secure control of all general assets of the contractor and third-party indemnitors who indemnify all concerned sureties by taking title thereto, security interests therein, liens thereon, or such other me uh, measures as they may jointly deem appropriate. So the first part of Section 4 discusses the process of gathering up and getting your hands and your arms all around all of the, the general assets. 
now that the assets have been gathered, what do you do with them? Section 4 continues by stating that unless otherwise mutually agreed, any general assets or the proceeds therefrom should be held in trust for the benefit of all sureties concerned. Thus, Section 4 first establishes a trust over all the assets to protect them while they're being held and gathered. Section 4 then provides that the net proceeds should be distributed among the sureties in the ratio which the loss to each surety bears to the aggregate of the losses of all the sureties. Such distributions shall be made from time to time as the sureties may agree. It could be difficult early on to determine the ratio of losses, um, and it, but the parties can certainly agree on interim loss ratios and distributions. The sureties may also need to share their loss information to justify their losses for purposes of determining the ratio. The sharing arrangement and its allowance for recovery of actual costs expenses and fees and protection of those assets is an eminently fair and, and equitable treatment of the assets. So uh, George, I'll turn it back over to you. When the principal is in default with multiple sureties on multiple bonded contracts, not every right asset or piece of collateral held by a surety has to be shared with the other sureties. The guiding claim procedure describes two such instances in Section 6. First, the sureties may have different sets of indemnitors executing their indemnity agreements. When one surety obtains a recovery or reimbursement or of all or a portion of its loss from one of its third-party indemnitors who is not an indemnitor of the other surety sustaining a loss under their bonds, such a recovery or reimbursement does not have to be shared with the other sureties. Second, one surety may have obtained collateral, either at the underwriting process or under the terms of the collateral demand provision of the indemnity agreement, prior to the execution of any bonds for the principal by the other sureties. The first surety exercising its rights to obtain such collateral does not affect those other sureties who have not yet exposed themselves to the risk of having written bonds, and the first surety does not have to share that collateral. Similar to Section 6, Section 7 addresses the issue of what happens as a result of the principal's use and application of the proceeds of any contract, whether it's bonded by one surety, bonded by another surety, or on a non-bonded contract. Namely, the principal may collect contract funds from many sources, place them in one account, and use or apply them to pay subcontractors, suppliers, and overhead expenses without any thought about or regard to which contract funds are used to pay what bills on what particular contracts. If the principal's payments are made without the knowledge, direction, or encouragement of one or more of the sureties who may have benefited by the principal's actions, that surety and those sureties shall not be responsible to any other surety for the principal's application or possible misapplication in a trust fund statute jurisdiction of such contract funds. At some point, the sureties will be stuck with what the principal has done with the use of the prior received contract funds, regardless of their source. Some sureties may be the beneficiaries of, and some sureties may be hurt by the principal's actions. If the surety or sureties have no knowledge of the principal's prior actions and did not direct or encourage the principal to take such prior actions, the sureties are not responsible to each other for what has occurred, either to their benefit or to their de detriment. Mike? Okay, okay, as, uh, as I noted at the beginning, we have our two uh, uh, distinguished guest commentators with us today. The first is 
Ms. Gretchen Eck. She's a senior surety counsel at Liberty Mutual Surety in Chicago. She's been with Liberty since 2012. Prior to joining Liberty, Gretchen was with Hinshaw Culbertson, Culbertson uh, for almost six years. She earned her Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Notre Dame in international relations and German. Guten Tag, Fraulein Eck. She earned her law degree from Ave Marie School of Law and her LLM from the DePaul University College of Law. Next, we have Mr. James Hamill, and he is claims counsel at Zurich American Insurance Company in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Jim has been with Zurich since 2010. Prior to joining Zurich, he was with Langley Weinstein and Hamill for three years. He earned his Bachelor, Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Texas, Dallas and his uh, law degree from the Southern Methodist University. Jim and Gretchen, we turn it over to you. Well, thanks, guys, uh, and thanks for the introduction. Um, anyway, Gretchen, I think that what we're to do here is talk about kind of how we've used these in the past and how we've seen them. We, everyone's just kind of heard what's in them. And so maybe we kind of do that. So maybe if you want to start us off talking about sort of how these came on your radar, how you learned about them, and, and how you sort of maybe got started using them. Sure. So for me, the guiding principles really have come about, come about in the past few years uh, with the larger default situations. The contractors are usually, you know, they usually have an international presence or an account with multiple principles underneath it larger uh, bonded contract amounts where you see varied sureties issuing the bonds. Um, the example that I have where, where the guiding principle arose is uh, a contractor that went into bankruptcy in Italy. The Italian parent went into bankruptcy, which affected jobs across the, the, the globe. Um, the U.S. jobs were bonded by Zurich and AIG with Zurich as lead. Uh, other U.S. jobs were bonded by Liberty and Zurich with Liberty as the lead. Then we had Canadian jobs with Liberty and AIG, Liberty was lead. And then individual bonds issued by each of the three sureties all over in Italy, Brazil, Peru, Poland. So it seemed like at every turn on this default, we were asking each other questions on you know, how do we share this piece of equipment? Uh, who shares the proceeds of this building? Um, when do we send letters of default and letters of direction? Uh, who pays percentages of overhead on all of these jobs in the various countries? Um, how do we split, this was kind of a big one, how do we ex split expenses and costs? We had expenses for counsel in the US, in Canada, um, in Italy, bankruptcy counsel. And then also, Indemnity, who has indemnity of the parent in Italy, who has indemnity of the U.S. operation, of the Canadian operation, and the list goes on and on. That's just a couple of them. So, you know, we kept running into these issues and we were wasting a lot of time dealing with each of them individually. Um, so finally, we all sat down, and luckily it was just three sureties in this instance, but, you know, three sureties with varied work and varied percentages. So we all sat down and started talking about it, and uh, it was Jim actually who sort of uncovered or resurrected the guiding principles from long ago and forwarded them all on. And as it turns out, we had been acting pretty much in accordance with the guiding principles without realizing it, but it was nice to have that framework out there and, and a, a structure for us to proceed with going forward. Yeah, that's cool. And we actually, they came on my radar uh, because Keith Langley told me about them. Uh, we had a different one 
uh, as well. I don't think Liberty was on it. It was in Texas. And there were uh, multiple sureties. And, and one of the interesting things, and, and this, this was the case in what you were talking about too, is this question, and George brought this up early on, about the different contexts in which these apply, which is, is it in sort of a follow-on surety context or is it in a co-surety context or whatever? And when we deal with these large accounts, it ends up being both most of the time because these bonds might have co-sureties on them, but that's changing all the time too. And, and you know, who's on the account is, is different. And so you have these bonds with different sureties all the time. And so you find yourself in these confusing situations uh, where it's follow-on, it's co, it's all these different things and different permutations. And then as you note, we had, you know, a million questions. So there you go. So one of the things uh, that they, you know, George uh, uh, brought up early too was the fact that these are not um, sort of express uh, or, or mandatory deals. So how have you dealt with that and, and have you made them express or, or how have you sort of gone about memorializing then that, uh, uh, this is how we're going to do it. I would say with each default that comes about, we definitely consider the guiding principles first. It's sort of, they're, they're natural to consider. Um, so far on the defaults that I've worked on, we have not had an express agreement. Um, we've had really good relationships with our co-surety partners and have been able to deal with things as they arise. Um, I know that at Liberty we have entered some uh, co-surety sharing agreements that tend to track the guiding principles. And I do think that as we see more and more um, default situations and we, we start to gather all of the facts and the varied issues and log those, that you know, I could foresee creating sort of a, a global co-surety sharing agreement that becomes more of a standard practice when these situations come up. Yeah. Um, we, I've actually had one where we entered into an express agreement, and, and that was on the, at the urging of counsel, which is another inter interesting aspect of this as well, is because if you do have these different follow-on sureties or co-sureties, and we're all sort of scrambling for assets or for priority and all that sort of thing, well, that's, that's conflicts then for if you have the same counsel that's trying to do this. And a lot of times you do, because you just have one, you want to have one lawyer or one law firm, you know, handling the whole, the whole matter for the sureties or the co-sureties. So if, you know, you, you don't uh, have an agreement, then there's going to be a conflict and, and that's going to be a problem. So that was yeah. one area where we did uh, have a uh, express agreement as well. And, and I like that you said it was at the urging of counsel because I, I think we do see that counsel urging you to have an agreement so there are no conflicts, but the flip side is uh, on the agreements that we've entered, we generally don't rely on counsel to draft them, you know, in an effort to keep that conflict out. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I, I just, it reminded me of something else too, which is almost kind of funny that we actually had a question about who got, which surety got a particular asset one time, and we wanted to put it to counsel. And uh, we knew counsel would be very uncomfortable with it. And so we tried it just to say, okay, what, hey, counsel, what if surety A has this and surety B says that, who wins? And try to do it without, without telling the attorney uh, which surety was which, but they didn't like that. So, uh, yeah, express agreements are, are way better for this, for the uh, attorneys involved. Um, 
I want to talk about practicality now too, and how we and you've touched on this a little bit, but uh, one of the two of the interesting things for me about this are number one that when you're when you're just starting out on a default, uh, which is where you would be dealing with these guiding principles, usually you're blowing and going at the beginning, and you don't have time to try to figure out you know what are we, how are we going to deal with this, how are we going to deal with that asset, and a lot of that time, a lot of time that stuff comes later anyway. And also another interesting thing is that these things do, they tend to drag on for years. And if we're going to be at each other's throats over assets, that's going to be a bad couple of years uh, for us. So I don't yeah, know about you, but I find years, that even using, in the future. Pardon me? And not, not just a couple of years that you're dealing with this default, but into the future. We're going to be working right. together back and forth. So. Yeah, so I find these are just good in general. Uh, as, a, as a practical matter to keep everybody working together because ultimately you've got enough on your plate trying to finish, you know, usually multiple jobs and uh, all the other various issues that come up all the time uh, without trying to figure out, okay, where's this money go? How does that asset get dealt with? You know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so. just to tack on to that, uh, my advice would just be get really comfortable with your co-surety partner, build that working relationship um, get to know, we all work for different companies, right? We all have different procedures, different motivating factors driving us. So get to know your, your co-surety's procedures and what's driving them. Um, be able to defend your own procedures and why you're, you're asking for something. Um, we can air a little bit of dirty laundry between Jim and I. Uh, you know, Liberty uses in-house accountants and in-house engineers in um, our investigation and a lot of times those in-house people will help manage and direct outside consultants whereas Zurich does not use in-house people they go straight to the consultants so I would say Jim and I have had multiple conversations about the value add of, of the in-house accountants and engineers and when it's appropriate to include their travel expenses or any other expenses that um, should or should not be shared between the co-sureties what do you think about that Jim? Any comments? Well, obviously, I, I agree with myself that I should never have to pay for <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, no, I, I, but yeah, it's a good point. I mean, and, and it's something that uh, I think should be dealt with up front uh, as well. Because, you're, you're, I mean, you are right. There, are, there is certain value add and, and that sort of thing, too. So, uh, yeah, it's just, and that's just one of these many issues that gets uh, uh, sort of swept up in this whole sort of dust cloud that you're dealing with as you sort of, much along. And you, you can mentioned see the, the minutia that it that it entails too, because that's just a really small issue on, out of all of it. Right. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned too was co-surety uh, agreements, and that was something on my list to to sort of bring up, because in my experience, and and I'll be interested in yours, but in my experience, co-surety agreements just they say so little about how to deal with claims and and how to deal with assets and all those sorts of things that from my standpoint, they're functionally useless and they make the need for something like the guiding principles even more sort of acute. So that's kind of my thought on that. But do you agree with that or disagree with that? Or what's your take? I totally agree with you there. Um, the co-surety agreement really just says who's lead uh, and not much more. I think I've had one co-surety agreement that directed um, where proceeds of an ILOC should go, but that's it. 
Well, you beat me to it because that was my next thing. Was the, I think the one area was in because I know that uh, our co-sponsors here brought this up is the deal, you know, with collateral and what happens if you have collateral. And so, but usually I'd say they're pretty specific about that if they're getting collateral. Is that how you find it as well? Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, okay. Uh, the last thing I have is something that they brought up, which was prior. Uh, uh, payments by the principal uh, and you know how because it seems you would, could get I think you'd agree <laughs> into a big mess <laughs> if you have to go through and trace who paid what to who and then who benefited from that and and what you know you, all of a sudden you're on this crazy tracing expedition trying to figure out who the principal paid and uh, you know and what to do about that uh, and it seems like the guiding principles say, and I didn't actually didn't know that until we started looking at it in conjunction with this, that the guiding principles say, no, 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 we're not going to worry about that. And, you know, what's out the door is out the door, unless one surety, you know, had knowledge and, and was dictating it or, or something along those lines. But um, to me, that's kind of a useful thing. And uh, uh, I don't know, I wanted to get your take on that as well. Uh, yeah, I like that section. It, it makes it very clear for us as claims people what we need to do, uh, and we can show this section to underwriting uh, who may want to make an argument of, you know, preserving preserving the money that should have gone to your job. Um, I also think that in this situation, it's very easy to kind of get carried away with tracing the money, and that you should pare it down and think about it as if you were the only surety on the job and, you know, say you got off the account and another surety got on the account. What happens then? And it's much easier to think about in, in those terms rather than the myriad of sureties involved at one time. Yep. So that is all that I had and wanted to cover. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about, Gretchen? No, I think that's about it. Okay. Well, this is George, and we thank you very much for your insights. Uh, you've done exactly what we had hoped you would do, which is to, uh, to, to put some flesh to the dry statements that Mike and I made. Uh, the only point I'd like to make going in is, you know, we've been talking with people from Liberty and Zurich, and we've heard AIG mention. Uh, I've been involved in these things before where there have been mid-level and smaller sureties involved who you know, I had no idea that there was another surety that was writing bonds at the same time they were, uh, or decided to get off that account and they know that some other surety is going to pick up the account. Um, and so there's absolutely no thought of an agreement between them until all of a sudden the principal gets into problems. So for those of you who are in, uh, you know, the smaller, mid-level, smaller surety companies, uh, these can be very important because, again, you're not reinventing the wheel. If all of a sudden you find you have a co-surety partner that's not really a co-surety, they're just there looking for the same stuff you're looking for. So, Mike, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, let's just uh, close out here and then open up the line for any questions. Uh, uh, before we do, the next uh, surety today will be Monday, April 13th at uh, 1230, of course. George and I will discuss uh, tendering a contractor on a job. Uh, upcoming surety industry events, the uh, Philadelphia Surety Claims will hold its next meeting March 18th at uh, Mangiano's in Philadelphia, and our uh, 
good friends at Forcon International will be speaking. The Southern Surety Claims Conference will be held from April 22nd to the 24th in Charleston, South Carolina. And Tom, Tom Moran from our office and myself will be there. So be sure to join us and say hi. And, and I echo what George said. Thanks so much uh, for joining us today. And, and a special thank you to our commentators, uh, uh, Jim and Gretchen. We look forward to speaking with everybody else again uh, next month. And let me open up the lines. Okay, any questions, anybody? Doesn't look like we've got questions today. So thanks, everybody. And, and thank you again, um, Jim and Gretchen, for, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.